darling, I would do it again. Ha, ha. Okay, hey. <laughs> My name is Mina. Welcome, welcome back. This is Highbrow. Um, I've been obsessed with Hosier's new album. Who's yay? Who's your? Who's yeah? The song is called Francesca. And the track is inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, particularly the story of Francesca de Rimini in the Second Circle of Hell, Canto Five. According to the artist, the track is taken out from the Second Circle, that of lust. Also, if your name is Francesca, you hell lucked out because I would be bragging that Josier wrote a song about someone named my name. <laughs> Also, okay, Dante Alighieri never read The Divine Comedy. I'm trying to change that because I feel like it's one of those pieces of literature that I kind of need in my little mental library so I can just say that I've read it. That's kind of my relationship with classic novels. Most of the time, I don't actually like the book, uh, but I feel like this pressure to read them so that I can say that I read them. So yeah, Divine Comedy is definitely on the to-read list, especially because I need my cat Dante after Dante Alighieri and I'm like I actually have no idea who that man is no idea actually you know what while we're on the topic of books let's just keep going on the topic of books because I had a thought the other day about Shakespeare you know William Will Shakespeare and I've always found Shakespeare really difficult to read I'm not gonna pretend that I'm just like super super smart and I understand everything and I get iambic pentameter because I don't and I took theater classes and I still don't okay like I understand what happens in Macbeth and Hamlet thanks to spark notes um, I would not be the woman I am today without spark notes so anyway I was thinking about it and I was like you know what like Shakespeare is really hard because it's old English. Like he was alive in the 16th century. He was writing for a 16th century audience. And I'm not from the 16th century. I'm from the 21st century. And so it makes sense that I wouldn't understand the language and I wouldn't understand the references. But if I was born in the 16th century, I would totally understand it. Like my brain would get that because Shakespeare performed in these giant theaters where peasants could go watch. They would like stand in the front rows or whatever. Uh, nowadays, that would be like premium seating. But you know, back then that was like broke people seating. It was giving broke. Um, and the peasants, the illiterate peasants, they would understand Shakespeare. They would understand what's going on at least. So I don't know what I'm trying to say about this other than the fact that I'm justifying that I'm not actually not smart. I'm actually just a 21st century. I'm a modern girl. Kind of same realization I have with Jane Austen because I love Pride and Prejudice. I love that book. Okay. Like it took me a really long time to actually get through it because it took me a long time to kind of get used to the language that she uses, but I ended up loving it. I read Persuasion because I was doing that video on Persuasion. <sighs> yeah, I'm a scholar, <laughs> but I was, um, I read Persuasion. That was tough too. I ended up getting used to it. After a certain point, I get used to it and it's fine. But like the first 100 pages or so, it is really hard. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know what? It's because she's writing for a Regency audience. Like if I was in the 1810s, I would body this work. I would 
complete, like it would be like the best book of my life. Like it would be so good. Um, and so, I don't know. I think it's just something to put myself into, pers- to put my own existence and my own capabilities into perspective and try to, it's all just to try to be kinder to myself at the end of the day, because I'm trying and these books are hard. <clears throat> so I need to correct myself here. Um, I think what I said about Shakespeare actually rings true because I was like looking into it and I was like, did the average people actually understand Shakespeare? But I think the average person watched the plays clearly. So they weren't like reading it. Um, and so maybe they didn't understand like every single line that was being said, but I assume they could at least follow it along enough, um, where they actually like enjoyed watching it or else like Shakespeare wouldn't be as successful as he was. But for Jane Austen, I was looking into the reading reception of Jane Austen and apparently she wasn't like a bestseller back then. Like her books were like popular enough, but, um, not nearly as popular as like Robinson Crusoe or Gulliver's Travels. Um, but also another thing was like a large portion of the population couldn't afford books or were illiterate. I guess I have to amend my statement and say like the average person living in the Regency time period would not have read and understood Jane Austen. Um, but a good number of literate people could who are not necessarily smarter than the modern literate crowd. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to amend my statement to. <laughs> My habit is I'll try to read books that I like immediately, which are usually not books that challenge me, like they're page turners. But I'm trying to get back into reading books that challenge me because I think it's in general better for my brain and my attention span too. Because, you know, we've we've been on this pod for a while now and I'm like always perpetually talking about my uh, stress when it comes to technology and social media and like my brain melting and being an iPad kid and whatnot updates on that. So uh, none of those tactics that we talked about worked for me, but I tried something this morning. Again, it's just this morning, so we're going to have to workshop it and see, but I changed all the apps to my phone to have a black image. And then my wallpaper is also black. So my phone is black aside from text that tells me what the apps are called. The reason I did this is because I was influenced by Killian Murphy, our Luddite king himself. Not to like bring him up again. I'm like not to uh, kick my feet and twirl my hair again about this man um, because it's a little embarrassing at my old age. But (laughs) I swear I've been like I've been toning it down lately, especially with the the Oppenheimer hype dying off. I feel like I'm not as, um, you know, in his magnetic field at the moment, but my explorer page has forever been changed by my little phase, my little obsessive era. And so I still keep getting like clips of him coming up on my Instagram explorer, my Instagram reels. I'm not like super on TikTok these days. I use Instagram reels like an old person. So I'll see memes like two months late, like a responsible adult. But anyway, so there was this clip of an interview that he did that came up on my Explore page. Obviously, I clicked on it and watched it because I'm not that strong. I'm not crazy. When I see his face, I will still click. And he was telling the interviewer that he has his phone set so that his entire phone is black. And in the interview, he was really like emphasizing the word black. It's like hilarious. He was like, my phone is black. All the apps are black. And I don't know what kind of phone he has, but... On an iPhone, it is a little bit of a tedious process that you have to do to get your phone to be like that. Basically, you like go into the shortcuts app and then you choose 
a photo for each app and the photo that I had downloaded was just like a black PNG image. So it just like created like a black image and then I changed my wallpaper to black so that the app blends into the background. So the only way that I can tell what app I'm clicking on is through the text, like the names of the apps, which you can actually customize too. So I think maybe you can just remove the name itself or you can like just have all the apps be named the same thing if you wanna be really crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just adopted this because I'm trying to make my phone as undesirable to look at as possible, like as difficult to use as possible. Like, honestly, my phone kind of looks like X right now, which is the new Twitter. If you haven't heard, if you're not on Twitter, uh, Elon Musk completely overhauled like the name Twitter. So now it's like X.com and the logo is an X and it's really ugly and everything's black and not blue and not cute and not a bird. So I did that to my phone and it's kind of worked so far because I haven't been reaching for it as much. And then when I do reach for it, I'm like, what the hell? Like nothing on my phone is interesting to look at. And also just like another note that I did, I removed like all the apps that I don't regularly use every day uh, from my home screen. So I only have one page on the home screen. I didn't remove the apps from my phone completely so I can search for them if I really need them. For instance, like TikTok, I didn't say, I decided was not a priority to have on my home screen. So I removed it from the home screen, but I can still access TikTok if I search for it. If you have an Android, they have this app called Minimal Launcher, which apparently does this for your phone without you having to like manually do everything. And apparently it's really nice, but I don't have an Android. So this is what you do if you have an iPhone. I also turned all my notifications off and I didn't tell anyone. Um, so if I have any friends who actually listen to my podcast, <laughs> just know that I am not answering your messages because I turned my notifications off. So I have no idea who's contact me, contacting me for what. And I'm trying to normalize the idea of calling if you really need something serious. Like if you need to talk to me, like please just call me. I don't know if anyone else gets like this too, but I do feel like a certain kind of fear about calling people on the phone. And I used to do it all the time. Like, you know, I grew up in the 2000s. So I used a landline phone and I would like talk to my friends all the time on the landline phone. But I think nowadays because texting has become so um, ubiquitous in our culture in terms of like communication that some people, if they like receive a phone call, they get like really affronted by that and they panic and they get really stressed out. And I don't want to give that stress onto another person. Um, but I do prefer calling and I just want to make an announcement that if you are someone who prefers calling too, then maybe just like tell your friends that like, obviously like they don't have to, but I think the big, uh, scare, the big fear there is that you're inconveniencing someone by calling because it's so like, you know, it's so antiquated and it's such a vintage way of communication that, uh, people just don't know if other people are down for it. So, I think that's good communication. Okay, we're 10 minutes in. I have not talked about anything serious. Um, I want to get back to William Shakespeare because I thought something that we could try out is like I just talk about some random historical thing at the beginning of an episode that has nothing to do with anything but is just interesting and I want to share it. Um, so why not? So one of the apps that I actually deleted was Reddit. I, I fully deleted it. It's not removed from my home screen. I fully deleted it because... I had been coming into this habit of reading Am I the Asshole like every day. Just whenever I'm bored, I'll like reach for it and like look at Am I the Asshole. And it was just taking up a lot of my time. And I would go through like all the comments too. Like I was really entrenched in the discourse. 
I think it's fine to do like every so often, but I was dedicating too much time to it. And I was like, this is, this needs to stop because I'm getting really too involved in other people's problems. And a lot of the comments on there are also just not that nice or they're really like misogynistic leaning or they're like sometimes racist because it's just like whoever the fuck who wants to comment on this, right? Like, I don't know who these people are, like, but yet I read what they're saying. And so I just decided I needed Reddit off my phone. But another forum, forum, that's so vintage, uh, page, Reddit page. I don't see this is how little like I actually participate on Reddit. Like I'm such a lurker because I have no idea what. Okay, subreddit. True. Okay, subreddit. Another subreddit that I sometimes frequent is the Ask Historians subreddit. I wish I was on there more than am I on. Am I the asshole? Because I think this is a more academic leaning subreddit, but because it's academic leaning, it also takes more brain cells for me to actually like process what I'm reading. And so I'm not on it as much, but I did go on it before I deleted the Reddit app and there was this really interesting question that someone posed, which is why are turkey legs at Renaissance fairs? See, that's the Shakespeare connection there. And I have never actually considered why turkey legs are like the default Ren Fair food. Maybe because I've never been to a Ren Fair, which I know is super off brand for me, right? That's super off brand, but I've never been. I really wanna go. I wanna go to medieval times. Um, I have a friend who went to some Ren Fair type of event in Canada. It's like called like La Batelle de Bicoline. It's an immersive participatory event at the heart of the largest medieval fantasy gathering in North America. I'm reading the uh, website, by the way. Let yourself be carried away by the magic of a medieval village and meet unique and colorful characters. Elves, orcs, pirates, monsters, mages, courtesans, and valiant knights gather for seven days of shows, banquets, feasts, tournaments, encounters, games, and battles, leading over 4,000 participants in an epic battle. So that sounds fucking awesome fire. I feel like I can't like commit myself to this at the moment because I haven't been to a run fair. Like I think the run fair is the first step and then it would be this like grand battalion because my friend was explaining it to me and apparently you don't have phone access because you're supposed to be in a medieval village. And on top of that, like there's so many people and there's like a whole battle at the end and I have never LARPed before. Like, I don't really know what that means to be engaged in a battle. Like, I feel like I would hurt myself. I feel like I'd accidentally hurt someone else. Um, I just don't think I'm at a point of responsibility to be at this event. I also don't have like a fire costume at the moment. Like I tend to gravitate towards like early 20th century, maybe Victorian, maybe um, 18th century clothing, but I haven't yet ventured into the medieval realm. So there's lots of, there's lots of places for me to be before I end up here. But this is just like an interesting thing that my friend went to and that she really likes. And that if you're interested in LARPing, um, definitely look into it, but you probably already know about it because you're into LARPing. Probably time to pick up groceries when you're eating ramen for the fourth time this week. On or off campus, you can use DoorDash to save you that last-minute grocery run. Get the back-to-school savings you really want and get unlimited free DoorDash delivery with DashPass. Just $4.99 a month for students. How worth it? So worth it. 
With $0 delivery fees, exclusive items, and more than 25,000 members-only offers nationwide, DashPass by DoorDash has everything you need to make this semester memorable. DashPass for students gets you delivery in an hour or less so you can satisfy those spur-of-the-moment cravings, or save even more with 5% DoorDash credits back on pickup orders. DashPass for students gives you access to more than just your favorite restaurants, saving you grocery runs, convenient store trips, and they even have your back with gift shopping. And you can save even more with an annual membership. Less than $50 a year for unlimited $0 delivery fees. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off up to $10 on your next order of $15 or more when you sign up for a DashPass student plan and enter code MINA. That's 50% off up to $10 on your next order of $15 plus when you sign up for the DashPass student plan when you enter code MINA. Don't forget that's code MINA for 50% off when you sign up for the DashPass student plan. Subject to change, terms apply. Back to the Renaissance Fair turkey leg, the history. So... The way that Ask Historian works is that I think you actually have to really cite your sources to be able to reply because they really um, prioritize academic research, which I really appreciate. So this one person who's been fact-checked, I guess, but they uh, cited their source as from the book Well Met Renaissance Fairs and the American Counterculture. And they said that Renaissance Fairs began in the 1960s. It was started by Phyllis Patterson. And Ms. Patterson, her first job after graduating high school in 1949 was hosting a TV show called Phil's Playhouse, um, where she would read stories and poetry. It ran as a Saturday broadcast while she went to Memphis State College. She then got friends from college to be the quote-unquote acts. So the acts like A-C-T-S, not A-X-E to be clear. Um, The educational aspect made her determined to focus on learning through the arts. And then after moving to LA, she started teaching high school English. In 1960, her first child was born and she looked upon a new job that would allow her more flexible time to take care of her child. She then found a job at a youth program called the Wonderland Youth Center, teaching drama to children. And she was actually teaching a lot of children. So (laughs) she was teaching 80 children ages six to 13. Um, in one class, I think. And to manage the class, she decided to use portions of historical plays and divided the children into fairly small groups, everything from caveman costumes for early storytellers on up. What ended up being remarkably popular was the Commedia dell'arte, or dell'arte, okay? (laughs) Um, So this was a form of theater during the Italian Renaissance with stock characters, but importantly for the children involved improvisation, acrobatics, and loud noises. Because this school, this youth center was in L.A., uh, there were a lot of big enough connections with parents in the film industry to put out an elaborate production with a high-end traveling troupe style cart. Eventually, the American National Theater and Academy asked the group to redo the Commedia at an L.A. festival, and the kids wanted to take the cart to other schools. The Commedia, feeling like a slice of a historical fair, was the imagination spawning point of the Renaissance Festival. In an interview with Phyllis Patterson and her husband Ron, um, they said, We imagined everyone in costumes and no microphones or other 20th century mechanical devices. Perhaps it could develop into a real fair. Many of the touchstones of the Renaissance Fair developed directly from the Commedia dell'arte, such as acrobatics, street characters, stock characters, improvising, and this all eventually led to Patterson's interest in the local radio station. Oh, by the way, also, I had to look this up. So um, if you don't know what a stock character is, it's like a character in a drama or fiction that represents a specific like archetype. Um, For example, Harlequin. 
and Pierrot, they are both stock characters. So anyways, Phyllis Patterson went to the board of the Pacifica radio station in January of 1963 to pitch a fundraising idea, an open air festival. It became the Renaissance Pleasure Fair of Southern California, which tried to reproduce an English country fair in the spirit and time of Elizabeth I, but also with inspiration from medieval times. The original idea was actually to call it medieval, but a lawyer from the radio station expressed concern about the level of human rights in medieval Europe. Hence, it got the name Renaissance Fair, which I think is so funny because I don't think uh, the Renaissance time period was specifically known for a lot of um, positive human rights either. But I guess medieval has a pretty uh, sadistic flair about it with all like the medieval torture stuff. So yeah, Renaissance was like the PG rebranding. And people didn't really care that the Renaissance and the medieval period were like distinctly different time periods because the fair as it was proposed was supposed to be sort of like an amalgamation. It wasn't supposed to be like strictly historically true to one time period. Regarding the turkey legs, turkey legs were pretty popular food during the Renaissance time. Henry VIII uh, was specifically known for um, being associated with turkey legs. If you've ever watched The Simpsons, there's this one episode where Homer Simpson, he plays Henry VIII in the Magical History Tour. And in it, he's like holding this giant turkey leg. So, you know, this is just like an example of Henry VIII's uh, connection with turkey legs. And therefore, when they were creating this first Renaissance fair, they were going for like Tudor style food. And so turkey legs just made a lot of sense for the time. Also in this uh, Reddit thread, the person who shared all this, um, they posted an image of the original flyer for the first Renaissance Fair, for the Renaissance Pleasure Fair. So I'll include the link to that in the show notes because it's a cute little flyer. It just tells you all the things that are going on, such as block prints, handcrafts, archery, jousting, Shakespeare, peep shows, pork pies. Um, all good time. I also wonder if like, the Renaissance Fair taking off had anything to do with the medieval revival that happened in the 1960s. I don't know if y'all are like fully aware of that period of time, but when I was looking at the Kari Institute's research database, if you don't know what that is, you should have listened to the Aesthetics and Subcultures episode. But <laughs> basically I interviewed this guy, Evan Collins, who is the founder of Kari, which is the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute where they catalog a bunch of consumer aesthetics across the 20th century and they actually have a category here listed mid-century medieval from mid-1950s to mid-1970s and they have a gallery of different images that would fit under the aesthetic but I'm just going to read the little bio here about what it is so the very kitschy revival of medieval and renaissance motifs and cultural touchstones in the context of the 1950s on economic boom expressed in the emergence of renaissance fairs okay true uh, Tudor style and fairy tale suburban architecture sword and sorcery movies steak and ale restaurant chain themed hotels additionally some examples are from the hippie variant of this revival in the 60s and 70s if you're into like the mid-century uh, medieval revival, I also highly recommend watching Jacques Demy's movie Donkey Skin. It's a French New Wave film. It came out in the 60s, I think. It's starring Catherine Deneuve. It's a musical. A lot of Jacques Demy's movies are musicals. 
and they virtually all have Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> My favorite one that I've watched of his is The Young Girls of Rochefort, which I highly recommend. It came out in 1967. Um, it also has Gene Kelly in it. And you know, we all love Gene Kelly, so highly recommend. And then his most famous one, most popular one, is probably Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was also one of the inspirations for Damien Chazelle's La La Land. I didn't love Umbrellas. I think it's a little bit on the sad side for sure, but culturally, I think it's an important watch. And it is a very beautiful movie at the end of the day, and the costumes are sick, so recommend for costumes and for Technicolor. But Donkey Skin, is the only one that I know of that's like medieval themed because it's based on a fairy tale of the same name. I'm not familiar with a fairy tale. There's a bit of an incestuous plot line just as a forewarning as a lot of these fairy tales go. I think that was actually part of the original fairy tale. It's basically like this king wants to marry his daughter because his wife dies and his wife makes him promise to never marry someone unless she's more beautiful than her sick in the head and so his daughter grows up and he's like oh actually my daughter is more beautiful than my wife so then he like decides he wants to marry her and she's like ew and she gets help from a fairy godmother and nothing incestuous actually happens but that's just like the premise so warning but the costumes in it are truly spectacular like they are on another level because they are medieval inspired costumes they're not completely historically accurate obviously and it's a fantasy too so he makes dresses for her and the dresses have like magical properties that are really cool i don't know it's a good movie it's a good time okay so that was my little history factoid of the day and it took up like half the episode <laughs> moving on i actually do have some updates that are less fun which is why i didn't want to open up with some updates um, nothing like super crazy, nothing super dramatic. Well, first of all, okay, exciting news first. I am starting a Patreon. It's going to launch September 1st. So this episode will come out before it launches. And basically, the way that I've structured this Patreon is that it's only going to be one tier, at least for now. I don't know if that's going to change in the future because I don't want to overpromise or overload myself with, with extra tasks. And I think what I can handle at the moment is offering one to two pieces of bonus content. And so this Patreon is not necessarily connected to this podcast. It is in a way because it's connected to me and I feel like my podcast and my YouTube are kind of like tied in a way. But the reason I'm saying it's not specifically connected to the podcast is because the bonus content is not going to be podcast material strictly like it could be. The bonus content though could also be video footage. Um, I'm leaving it up to whatever I wanna do for the month because I think it could be fun to mix and match. Some ideas that I've had for like the initial launch is I wanna do a behind the scenes video of my research process because so many people ask me how I research, how I find um, articles, how I find information. And I think just like kind of demoing that out with you all could be really fun. Um, I also want to do some like makeup and hair tutorials because I get that question a lot. Maybe a closet tour and then maybe some informal commentary type of podcasts or videos. Again, we're just like seeing what sticks, uh, what lands. And so I would super, super appreciate if you have the capabilities to join me on Patreon. Another reason why, actually, I guess I didn't give any reasons why I'm launching this. Um, because I used to actually do Patreon and I stopped because I started school. I started this acting conservatory program for two years and it finished up just recently. And just with 
the program, it became too much for me to dedicate myself to like all these different things. And I had to pick and choose which ones I wanted to do. And I ended up sacrificing getting rid of my Patreon. But I also think that I was just over ambitious with it too. So this is why this time, like I'm really strict about only doing one tier and only doing like two offerings maximum per month because I just, I don't want to like overload my work schedule um, and then not be able to commit or feel really, really tired committing. Cause I don't want this to be like an exhausting thing. Like I actually like want it to be a fun thing. <laughs> I'm like surprise, surprise. I want it to be fun because another thing happening is that I am taking some time off YouTube and I'm hesitant to like even say that because I don't want to be dramatic about it because it's not going to be that long. Trust me, like I really love doing YouTube. I just like need a bit of a break and I also have some ideas that I've been thinking about that I don't feel ready to hard launch onto YouTube that I would like to soft launch first on Patreon. And the reason I don't want to hard launch on YouTube is because I'm very precious with my YouTube content in a way because I have a large following. And when I feel like I have a large following, I get more like antsy and stressed out and anxious about the kind of content that I'm giving to this many people. I'm also more um, concerned about like algorithms and everything. So I've noticed in myself for the last several months, I tend to gravitate towards topics that I think a lot of people can relate to when in reality, like I do enjoy talking about those things, but I also have a lot of like niche interests that I would love to talk about, but I don't know if a lot of people would be interested in. And so I think that's like what my Patreon is for because it gives me that flexibility to just create things without having to worry about an algorithm. And honestly, I like, I hope to share a little bit more about my personal stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like saying that like it's like such a bad thing. I actually am like a pretty private person despite being an online person. <laughs> I don't like to overshare about my life and I think it's because I overshared a lot when I was a kid and I've just realized that I don't need to anymore and that it was interfering with my ability to find value and just existing by myself without public validation. Like the kind of stuff I would post all the time is like I would post like the food I ate every day or like I would post anytime I hung out with a friend and I would like post you know whenever I went out and I I stopped doing that now I kind of just like post whenever like I remember to or when I feel like it or if I took like a really cool photo that I wanted to share or if I felt really good about something that I want to share but it doesn't feel like it's a necessity anymore because yeah before I just felt like my experiences weren't valid unless I shared them with people I'm a little bit older now um and my audience has grown bigger which again has made me a little bit more cautious about oversharing because they say what gets put on the internet exists forever though actually Okay, sidebar, I don't even think that's true anymore because I was reading this article from Paul Scala, Paul Scalis. He writes a newsletter that I subscribe to and that I pay for. So that's kind of embarrassing that I don't know his last name, but I honestly am a news subscriber 
And I subscribed because I keep seeing his articles, like previews of his articles coming across Twitter. And I think he's a really good writer. So I subscribed so I could get full access to his articles. But he wrote an article a couple of months ago about how the internet is not forever. And it really resonated with me in a scary way. But in it, he talks about how one, well, he cites examples. So one, Elon Musk announced that Twitter will be deleting accounts that have been inactive for several years. Uh, Google announced a new policy of deleting inactive Google accounts. The new deadline is also two years um, and they clarified it doesn't apply to YouTube videos yet but that's probably coming next three the very popular photo hosting site Imgur will be removing old unused and inactive content and then also the website BuzzFeed News they shut down some months ago but they put up a website for the archive but it isn't searchable and Paul is saying like who knows how long this is going to stay up because it costs money it costs like $75 a year to maintain a website and if no one's reading it at some point someone is going to probably turn it off and then that information is gone forever so you know I grew up with this mentality that like everything on the internet stays forever and I really think that was just either like a scam that parents told us so that we would be careful about what we're posting in case that harmed us from getting into college or getting a job, which to an extent that's true. But also I think maybe it's just like a not a clear understanding of the internet because the internet was still kind of young then and things were on the internet for longer. And now we're just kind of in this new wave where people are removing websites, where social media sites are scrubbing old and active accounts because it costs money to maintain storage space. I mean, MySpace, uh, most of it cannot be found online anymore. MySpace admitted to losing 12 years worth of music uploads back in 2019. So I wouldn't be surprised if we just like lose more and more data over the next several years, which is really sad for me because I think internet history is really important on an academic, on a scholarly research level. Like there are so many Tumblr posts that I feel like really changed who I am as a person that I would love to find, but I can't find them anymore because Tumblr completely like changed the way that their search function works and their hashtags over the last couple years. And I think they also just like removed inactive stuff. Like it's just really hard to find content on there now that used to exist on there, which is really sad because that was like my whole childhood, you know? Anyways, what was I talking about? I was talking about Patreon. Oh, I was talking about oversharing on the internet. I am just at a place in my life where I realize not everyone needs to know that much about me. Like <laughs> it goes back to that meme, like we all know too much about each other. And sometimes I feel like that way too. In saying that, I think what would be cool with the Patreon is Patreon is inherently going to be a smaller community because it is like a paid thing. And I know that a lot of people are interested in what I'm doing. And I think some of the things that I do are interesting and worthy of sharing. I just like feel weird about so many eyes on it, but I would be happy to share it with like a smaller community. So yeah, that's kind of where my head's at with Patreon. In terms of the YouTube stuff, like as I said, I'm taking a bit of a break. I don't even know if I've said that already. I recorded this like twice because I didn't like the way that I sounded the first time. So I don't know if I said this again in the second take. I am taking a bit of a break from YouTube for a, a hot minute, like literally a hot minute. It's not going to be serious. Like I feel like I'm the drama when I talk about this type of stuff, but I just wanted to be transparent because I know some people do include my videos as part of their like weekly routines or like bi-weekly routines. And I don't want to scare anyone by not being active for a little bit, but I think I just really want to take this time Time to kind of like one take a break and to reconsider what I'm doing um, content-wise and consider some of the ideas that I have so yeah it's not that dramatic 
right? Um, in terms of the podcast, like I am going to keep doing the podcast, but okay, this is like another announcement. I am making the cadence also bi-weekly. So instead of every week, it'll be every two weeks. And this is actually a cadence that I really wanted to do from the beginning, but I was convinced by outside forces that I should do it every week. And I don't know, I like I like doing it, but I also feel like with the episodes that are based on my videos, they're just so much extra work that makes the process very difficult to have fun in because the way that I do my videos is that I'll write out the script for that video and then for the podcast editions I'll write up the parts post filming the original video and so it's a lot of like trying to figure out segues and trying to insert extra segments that actually interrupt the flow of the initial script but then trying to do it in a way that doesn't really <laughs> interrupt the flow it's it's a lot of surgery and so I don't know I think we'll try out a new format here too and I am also very much open to feedback the thing with podcasts is that I don't really get a lot of feedback unless people like specifically write in or one of the benefits of living in New York City is that sometimes people will come up to me and tell me that they listen to my podcast or whatnot and so I'll get feedback in that way but there's no comment section for every episode so it's it's hard to see or it's hard to know whether or not people are responding positively to something that I'm adding in or something that I'm doing so right now I'm kind of just like prioritizing what feels good for me but I am also interested if you feel very strongly you can write in and I'll collect responses to help guide me on doing whatever the fuck I'm doing Fall is coming up and with the change of seasons, I feel like a lot of people itch for a new wardrobe. I'm always looking for ways to scratch that itch more sustainably and that's why I want to talk about Newly, a subscription clothing rental service that lets you try out new styles without having to fully commit. For just $98 a month, you get a choice of any six styles each month. The subscription comes with a massive selection, a thousand styles from more than 400 brands, from cult faves like Lisa Says Ga and Frankie's Bikinis to popular brands like The North Face and Levi's. A renting service is a really good option if you want to try out a new style, but know you're someone who tends to buy something, wear it once or twice, and then have it collect dust in your closet. I know inclusivity is always a struggle, so Newly offers sizes up to 5X plus petite and maternity. They have fast, free shipping and returns, as well as professional cleaning, so you don't have to worry about laundry. Orders are also shipped in recycled, recyclable, and reusable totes with no plastic packaging. And if you really love the clothes, there's an option to buy with discounts up to 70% off. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles, but right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code MINA20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com, that's Newly with two U's, and enter the code MINA20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, Newly with two U's, with code MINA20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. So those are just things happening in the back end of my life. <laughs> And I'm really thankful for everyone who's been a part of everything that I've done always. It's just like, it still mind blows me that I am working for myself and just like talking and people are interested and looking into things that interest me and people are also interested in that. Like really the internet, even though I shit on it all the time and I'm trying to get off at social media more and blacking out my phone, I still really appreciate it. Okay, last thing I wanna talk about because I have to talk about it is this article that I read in 
the Washington Post. It's written by Rachel Toshian, and I am obsessed with her writing. I think she's a great writer. She always has really good pieces in the Washington Post. She also has this newsletter called Opulent Tips, which I've been dying for a subscription to. The thing with Opulent Tips is that it, it's invite only, so she has to add you to the list manually. And because I don't know her personally, I haven't been able to get on the list. And also embarrassingly, I've tried DMing her on Twitter, but that didn't work either because she doesn't check her Twitter DMs or because she saw me and decided I wasn't cool enough to be on her newsletter re recipients list. I'm hoping it's the first one, uh, but if anyone knows Rachel, please tell her that I would love to be able to read whatever she's writing on there. I have no idea what she's writing on there, but I know it's gotta be good. And I think that's the thing with like any type of exclusionary, anything that's exclusive, I feel like I need it more because it's the idea that I can't have it, right? That I want it more. Anyway, so this article that she wrote for the Washington Post, it's called, Whatever Happened to Having Taste? In this article, she starts off by talking about the Real Housewives of New York, who, if you don't know the Real Housewives of New York City, like consider yourself like considerably smarter than myself because I have spent like 24 hours binging this TV show. I used to watch it a lot with my mom, like the original series. So the way that it, okay, let me let me explain what's happening in the Roni cinematic universe. But season 14, which is the one that was released recently, it's a completely new cast. They completely overhauled the old cast and they replaced them with a younger group of women. And to be honest, I think that's fine. Like I do really like the old cast and apparently I think they're getting their own show too. Like I think Roni is splitting off into two groups, but with the new cast, it is like younger people, but also it's like a lot of like, you know, women of color who are in it. Uh, Jenna Lyons, who's like a lesbian, she's in it. And I think that's really cool because the original Roni, like they were all white. And I don't think that's like very representative of first of all, anywhere, but also like, especially not New York City. Like, come on, like be fucking for real. Like. New York City, um, it needs to be a little bit more diverse if we're gonna capture the the real, real housewife experience. <laughs> so this new cast there, I like them enough. I think the thing with like watching reality TV is that I'm never really invested in anyone that much. I kind of just like have it going on in the background while I'm doing other things because it's really easy for me to follow along. Like I, I can tune out and tune back in and nothing too major would have happened for me to like have to rewind and you know, really, I don't have to plug in that way. And that's why I like reality TV. But in saying that, there's a lot of people who do feel a certain like tier listing, tier ranking for the characters, characters, the people, the real people in it. And a lot of people really like Jenna Lyons, who if you do not know who Jenna Lyons is, she she was the executive creative director and the president of J. Crew for a long time. And she is honestly like just really, really cool. But the thing with that Rachel was pointing out. So yeah, Rachel did mention Jenna Lyons in this article. She talks about how Jenna Lyons is special in the sense that she actually has taste. Like she's broken from the mold of the Real Housewife franchise. And that's what makes her special. And that's what makes people want to watch her more than any of the others. Rachel wrote, the Real Housewives franchise presents wealth as a uniform experience with occasional regional specialties. The ladies from one city may go shopping at a mega mall, while in another, they prefer browsing designer clothes outdoors. But nearly every housewife loves a sheath dress, a Gucci handbag, and sitting down to lunch to resolve 
resolve their differences. In parentheses, it always backfires. Con the conformity of the show is what makes the presence of Jenna Lyons, who reinvented J. Crew in the 2000s with an explosive aesthetic of cubicle-bound glamour meets Prado weirdness. So intriguing. When her Real Housewives of New York City castmates arrive in the Hamptons in a black Escalade, <laughs> she pulls up to the driveway in a banker blue vintage Mercedes sedan. Okay, I do not know cars because I live in New York City and I got my license during the pandemic and my in-car driving test was just parking because they weren't allowed, the instructors were not allowed to be in the car with us. And so honestly, it was really easy. And because of that, as a responsible adult, I choose not to be on the roads knowing that the way that I got my license was kind of crazy. So while Jenna's castmates are content to frolic in the awkwardly oversized beige expanse of one cast member's Hamptons home, Lyon escapes to her own Hamptons house, a 1200 square foot bungalow in Art World's enclave, Amongaset, contrasts delectably with her host's five bed, seven bathroom remodel. The others favor form fitting clothes from a familiar set of designers. Lyons wears boyish blazers with no bra underneath, glittering Miu Miu button ups, oversized glasses, and funky lipsticks. And then Rachel also talks about how so much of the world is dominated by algorithms, um, by quote, data collection that steers us toward a limited set of products and designers who have paid for the privilege of coming up first in our search. The result is that our taste has gotten, as the Real Housewives suggested, only more homogenous, more limited. It's hard to find something special and why look for it anyway? So I think what Rachel's getting at is like the idea of personal style is going away because we're fed all the same things with algorithms. And therefore, when someone who actually has like an authentic personal style that doesn't seem to be dictated by algorithms, they really stand out. And they're someone that we look at because as Rachel writes, um, these choices can suggest a person underneath, someone whose unusual mind or way of thinking encourage them to live slightly different than everyone else. She also brings up the origin of the fashion influencer, which I think is really interesting because I was a little young when fashion influencers started really taking off, but I do remember a little bit about it. Like, does anyone remember lookbook.nu? It was like this platform, this like social, early social media platform platform where people would just upload pictures of their outfits of the day and I don't know people would like it they would give them likes or whatever I don't think you could make money from it I think most people just used it to like promote their own wordpresses or blog spots which is like the original domain of the fashion influencer before Instagram um, was introduced and these early fashion influencers fashion bloggers they were different in the sense that they were anti-establishment kind of which is a weird thing to say about fashion influencers but fashion advice style advice, fashion in general was dominated by Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and these really big established magazines that have been around for a long time. And so for someone to create their own blog and create their own photos and talk about their own personal style, like that was really cool. That was alternative. That was indie, dare I say. Um, and that was anti-establishment in a way. Then obviously with Instagram, it became way more accessible for anyone to become an influencer. And then companies recognized the marketing potential that Instagram influencers had, which led to lots of gifting and paid promotions, which has unfortunately led to this kind of homogenous environment on Instagram. So rather than being alternative to the establishment, these new fashion influencers have sort of become the establishment because they're working so closely in relation to these companies and brands um, promoting the kinds of products that are also being promoted on the pages of Vogue and Refinery29 and Who at Where. There are people out there, of course, who have really distinct personal styles and who I really 
really look up to. Okay, let me try to pull up some names here for you all. Let me give some free promos out. I am obsessed. I've always been obsessed with Cora Violet Walters. That is her Instagram handle, Cora Violet Walters. She is also an antique dealer or a vintage seller. Um, I always miss her auctions. Like she has them on live auctioneers, I think every so often. It's not like super often. It's like every couple months, I think, where she'll sell like some really cool pieces, but her personal style is immaculate. And she combines a lot of different eras of vintage clothing. She combines like modern clothing. I am inspired by her. Like I, I think also if you like my style, you would probably like her style as well because she has a very similar style ethos to me. And she has this beautiful 1920s robe that I'm obsessed with. And I really, like if she ever sold that thing, like, and someone else bought it other than me, I would cry like a million tears because that's my fetish, y'all. Like a 1920s cocoon coat. Hello? That's what I want. Another person that I think has amazing style is Miss Josephine. So M-S-J-O-S-E-P-H-I-N. She lives in Berlin and her style is more like sexy and like dark, but I think it's so curated. It's so well done. Um, she wears a lot of like black and white. Um, she balances a lot of like masculine types of clothing with like very feminine clothing. She reminds me so much of Marlena Dietrich actually. And I'm not just saying that cause Marlena Dietrich is German, but Josephine just like has this ability to really balance um, masculine and feminine energies in a way that I really admire. And also she's just like really good at styling her hair. Like I always look at her hair inspo posts and her makeup was good too. So those two are definitely my current favorite fashion people on Instagram, but they also don't do, I don't know if they've done any like paid brand, clothing brand sponsored posts. Um, and I think unfortunately the thing is, I don't really look up to a lot of fashion influencers who are strictly fashion influencers. Like they're making a living off of being a fashion influencer and they're constantly posting sponsored posts because they're all sponsored by the same brands who don't really resonate with me. And I noticed that a lot of them will tag team a bunch of brands all at once that they were gifted. So it's like, oh, like these new shoes like are tagged. The This shirt is tagged. This uh, skirt is tagged. Like I think it is totally possible to create a really fabulous outfit with a gifted or sponsored item. But I think uh, the ability to do that goes down significantly if you're just trying to create an outfit with like only sponsored or only gifted items. I don't know. I like, I don't want to wax poetic about uh, the death of taste or, you know, something like equally as dramatic when it comes to fashion influencing. Because at the end of the day, I think people can find whoever they want who resonates with them and the two girls that I mentioned they're not like super huge like they don't have like major major followings and I just lucked out and being able to find their profiles I don't know we have like a lot of mutual friends and it ended up working in that way where I was able to discover them and they inspire me and I think there are so many people on TikTok on Instagram on every kind of social media service that you can find someone whose style resonates with you that is not like super mainstream if you don't like stuff that is mainstream. My general thing though is that I resonate with uh, Rachel in the sense that like people who 
do step out of the mainstream are the ones who are the most interesting to look at and the most memorable. For instance, does anyone remember the Subway Sessions girl? If you don't know who that is, she like kind of went viral on TikTok for making these like really weird outfits. She was like filming TikToks in the subway. The cut profiled her and I think she kind of lost relevance because she said some questionable things. Uh, She was giving like New York transplant vibes, which never resonates well, (laughs) but... She said in the interview that she only hangs out on the Lower East Side and that she would never go to Harlem or Queens because people there wouldn't get it, which was very loaded, um, especially because a lot of her style elements are style elements that were pioneered in Harlem. So yeah, it just kind of like gave off like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. It didn't resonate well. And that's why I think she hasn't been in the media lately. But I do think like her rise in virality was because she had very polarizing outfits. Like they weren't super flattering, but they were still thought out. Like you could tell that she spent some time picking out her outfit. And I think that dichotomy is what makes someone's style interesting, at least to me. But going back to Rachel's article, she does talk about kind of like the future of tastemakers um, because we're clearly not really getting that from Instagram (laughs) anymore. But she talks about the rise of these newsletters and she mentions Leandra Medine Cohen. And if you don't know who Leandra Medine Cohen is, she was the editor-in-chief of Man Repeller. She got in some hot water for some controversial takes that she had on the um, Cutting Room Floor podcast, which you can listen to if you want. It's available on Spotify, I think. But anyways, like since leaving Man Repeller, she started her own newsletter on Substack called The Serial Isle. And I'm not subscribed to it, so I don't actually know what she posts on there, but... From Rachel's article, it seems like she posts a lot of like recommendations for clothing and she basically like teaches you how to style yourself in line with her personal taste. And I checked it out briefly. Again, I didn't pay for it, so I can't really say what the quality of this newsletter is, but it has like over 89,000 subscribers. So it's doing pretty well. Like she's probably making a killing from it. And this is just a pattern that a lot of writers have been embarking on is gatekeeping their recommendations behind a paywall. And I think this is kind of the new form of fashion influencing. It's gonna be way more niche because it's not like public access content. But I think if you're paywalling this content, then you're not pressured to take on like these kinds of sponsorships or to do like gifting or paid promo because you've got your income covered and so you're more free to talk about things that you actually really like. Leandra calls this the commodification of taste and she says that most shopping or fashion newsletters offer recommendations now engaging in a sort of competition of best or rarest recommendations. While I'm saying this I think the majority of people don't really care (laughs) that much about creating like a very distinct personal style or even like finding the coolest recommendation. So I feel like the people who are subscribed to these kind of newsletters are people who are like either interested in fashion or they're like in the industry themselves. Because I swear when I was living in Maryland, (laughs) 
I would wear like Jeffrey Campbell's shoes from TJ Maxx and everyone gave me so many compliments. <laughs> this was like when I was in high school. And I wouldn't say Jeffrey Campbell is a particularly niche designer or brand. Is Jeffrey a real person? Wait. Okay, Jeffrey is a real person. I don't know why I doubted that. I'm like, what else could, why would a random brand name itself like a name? Okay, question though, because Jeffrey Campbell used to make like their own actual interesting shoes. But I feel like nowadays they just copy a lot of other brands shoes and like make them in a more affordable price range. But they used to like actually create like they used to be shoe pioneers. So I don't know what happened over there over at Jeffrey Campbell headquarters, but they need to fix that. Anyways, as I was saying, like growing up in suburbia, I was wearing these like Jeffrey Campbell shoes and I was like a tastemaker because I don't know, people weren't wearing Jeffrey Campbell, but I wouldn't say like that is necessarily like a rare purchase. Definitely not something that would be featured in these newsletters, in these highly covetable fashion newsletters. So yeah, I think that's like something to put in perspective. I am wondering how much people actually care about these things because so many of these articles are written by people in the fashion industry who do have a stake in it or who live in New York City or another cosmopolitan metropolitan city with a thriving fashion industry. And so their like idea of what people want is skewed because at the end of the day, I don't think that many people are looking to be unique. I think a lot of people are looking to be comfortable and stylish to get respect in the workplace. That's what I've noticed a lot of videos on TikTok and a lot of these like guides that are written on these blogs. It's about helping the modern woman uh, dress for the workplace or dress for like a hot date. It's not like for her to be sitting front row at a fashion runway show. But you know, I don't know what I'm saying sometimes. <laughs> I haven't done any market research for this. Okay, y'all, this is the end of this episode. I hope you had fun. As a reminder, we're doing bi-weekly, so I will see you in two weeks. And we'll be in the thick of fashion week actually, so I'll give you maybe some updates if I actually get invited to anything because that is a whole another political the journey. I'll talk about it next time, actually. I will talk about the politics of the fashion industry the next time for a little bit. So, anyways, darling, I will do it again. Uh, okay, I really <laughs> don't know how to sign off. Um, if you want to follow Highbrow on Instagram, it's uh, highbrow.pod. This episode was edited by Ella Gray. Music's by Olivia Martinez. Singing by myself. <laughs> um, and art by Lindsay Mintz. All right. Mm -hmm.